Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And He said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding on what is coming on the world. For the powers of of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Well, we come to one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. As I mentioned last week, many well-respected theologians have come up with very different ideas on how we are to interpret this portion of Scripture. The study of the end times is, is a subject that opens up all kinds of different perspectives. We call this the subject of eschatology, the study of final things. And because Scripture like this poses many interpretive challenges, uh, I want to come at this with humility and tell you up front, I do not have everything figured out. I do not... uh, I do not uh, consider myself any kind of expert when it comes to this subject, but what I want to do is carefully consider this text and walk through it and make observations, and we don't have to agree at the end of the day, okay? So I'm probably going to present a few things that you had not considered from this before, 
And you may not agree with my conclusions that I draw, and that is totally fine. This is not one of the essential doctrines pertaining to salvation. We have doctrines that are essential because they are gospel issues, and then we have a large secondary category that we can disagree about, and we are still part of the same family. So we can celebrate the Lord's table once a month, and a church down the street might do it every week, and we differ that way, but that's okay because those are secondary or tertiary issues. Uh, The triune God is not a, a secondary issue. The resurrection of Jesus Physically from the dead is not one of those secondary issues. How how the events of the end are going to unfold is a secondary issue, and we can disagree, and that's okay. So let us together consider humbly this very challenging portion of Scripture. Now, two weeks ago, I did sort of an overview of Luke 21, and there were certain things that I wanted you to uh, keep in mind as we approach this chapter. So it was kind of a broad overview, and there were four principles that I wanted you to keep in mind as you interpret this chapter. And the first one is, it is about the destruction of the temple. So we do not want to jump into this chapter, and all we can see is the 21st century modern day and try to interpret it without considering what the original audience was hearing. Right, So Jesus is talking to a group of disciples. He's looking at them in the eye. He's saying, you, you, you. He's talking about them. And we do not want to lose sight of that lest we get into some unbiblical teaching. Secondly, we also... Oh, sorry. I wanted to give a verse real quick. Teacher, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? That was the question they posed to Jesus in Luke 21.7 and the remainder of the chapter is his answer to that question. So that helps us to keep things in perspective. Secondly, while it is about the destruction of the temple, we also recognize it is a type of the final judgment. Or, it, in other words, it's a foreshadowing it's, it's a, you know, you, you, you see different aspects of this teaching that you recognize have a kind of finality to them. And so clearly Jesus is doing what a lot of the Old Testament prophets would do, is he would give a near fulfillment in his prophetic teaching, but it actually had a final fulfillment at some time in the distant future. So it is about the temple, but it is also about the end of the age. Thirdly, it contains apocalyptic language. He talks about the sun going dark, the, sky, the stars falling from heaven, the moon turning to blood, and we see that kind of language in various places in the Old Testament, and I gave a few last time, where those prophets were talking about the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of Egypt. And we notice that language is very uh, colorful language to describe what we might say, earth-shattering events. So we want to recognize that some of the language Jesus uses in this chapter is apocalyptic, meaning it's heavily symbolic. And then the fourth one that I shared was that we want to be careful to read these kinds of passages without importing current events into them and seeing a correlation between what Jesus says and a particular event and saying that's what it is and that's all it can be. And I gave some examples last week of how in the 70s it was a big, actually even before that, 60s, 70s, it was churches assumed that the 10 kings in Daniel chapter 7 was the European Union of the 10 nations, okay? And then when nations were added to that, it ruined the whole setup they had. Or I showed you how for hundreds of years, good, solid, Bible-believing Christians believed that the beast in Revelation was the Catholic Church and the Pope was the Antichrist. And they wrote as if, of course it is, it can be nothing else. And I even showed you in our own 1689 London Baptist Confession, they had that as part of the confession. So, 
the illustration I used on how we are to read this chapter last time was like bifocal lenses. So bifocal lenses help you see what is near and they help you see what is far. And we want to keep both of those things in view as we study Luke chapter 21. We want to consider not only how this chapter relates to us and our experience in the world, but we want to remember what this meant to the first century audience. So we will consider these things together. Starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now we saw in chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 that Jesus and his disciples were spending a lot of time in the temple. It began when they came to Jerusalem and Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers and those who were buying and selling animals and he drove them out. And one would think after that kind of spectacle he would leave, but he ends up remaining and for several days after teaching the people in the temple. We saw that the religious leaders did not like that and so they came and confronted him and we have that exchange happening. And we went through those verses. And now Jesus is leaving the temple. Jesus and his disciples are finished. This is most likely the Wednesday of this final week. And as Jesus and his disciples leave this temple, it is very symbolic of what we see in the Old Testament when in Ezekiel's day, the glory of God left the temple. If you remember prior to the destruction of Solomon's temple, there was this scene in Ezekiel where where God's glory leaves the temple, meaning that God's favor and blessing toward His people was removed. And we see a similar thing happening here that is very subtle, but Jesus leaving the temple and then going up on the Mount of Olives is a picture of what happened in that Old Testament book. Jesus says in Matthew's account after this, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Meaning this is God incarnate leaving that temple and then pronouncing a curse upon it. But as they're leaving, the the disciples are awestruck at what they're seeing. I mean, they are just like, Master, look at how beautiful this building is. And... Just to put it in perspective, if you remember the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that was the rebuilt temple in those days, and people wept because the temple was so much a shadow of its former glory. So it was was so much smaller and so much unimpressive compared to Solomon's temple. But then Herod the Great in, when was it? Uh, 37 B.C. decided he's going to really revamp the temple so that it becomes an ancient wonder of the world. So he invested tons of money into this massive building project and it becomes three times the size of what it was. And he puts in marble stones and he puts gold all around it. And it's this Huge structure with a courtyard the size of four football fields. So this thing is massive. And it would be impressive to anyone who visited Jerusalem, whether they were Jew or not, because this was this, this, this beautiful building on a hill. The ancient historian Josephus, in his 20-volume work entitled Antiquities, describes what you would see. He says, the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For, being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as they would from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, 
for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So Jerusalem is on a hill and the temple is there and this would be like a, like a city on a hill that is lit up and it would really be something to behold. Now, we know that Jesus told us it was not a light on a hill. Rather, it was devoid of light. And he's going to describe, spend the rest of this chapter describing its destruction. But the disciples have the opposite reaction because they are just dumbfounded. Mark is a little more emphatic in his uh, rendering of it in Mark 13.1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now you have to keep in mind the ordinariness of these men. These men are from Galilee. Many of them are fishermen. So this is like a bunch of backwoods boys from Alabama visiting New York City. I mean, they're just walking around looking at the skyscrapers, just amazed. And what Jesus says next must have been a shock. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I mentioned last week, but in the Jewish mind, the temple was the center of the universe. I mean, this is the place where God has chosen to dwell with humanity. And any thoughts of the temple's destruction in the mind of the disciples would be a thought of the end of the world. In other words, they couldn't conceive of life on this earth continuing without that temple where God promised to dwell. And so, this is why we see a more complex question in Matthew, which I talked about last week, Matthew 24, 3, they ask, tell us, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in their minds, they're thinking this is a singular event. When is the temple coming down and the end? I mean, it's got to be the end, Right? If the temple's the centerpiece of God's plan for humanity, how on earth could there be anything beyond that? And so they have no conception, as Jesus is teaching, about a 2,000 year gap between these events. This is one thing in their mind, and they want to know how it's all going to go down. And so as Jesus answers them, he not only discusses the destruction of this sacred building, once sacred building, but he, like prophets of old, is talking about the fulfillment of the destruction at the end of the age. So he, they think he's talking about a singular event. He knows he's talking about something that's going to be in two stages. Now, they ask the question, when? And he responds by first giving them several important warnings. So they say, Lord, when is this going to happen? And he begins by warning them. And there are several things he warns them. And I wanted to get all of them in one sermon, but I couldn't. So I'm going to give you two of them. These are preliminary warnings to his answer about the destruction of the temple The first warning is, do not be led astray. And the second, do not be falsely alarmed. So do not be led astray in verse 8. Do not be falsely alarmed in verses 9 through 11. And that is as far as we're going to get today. So when will these things be? Jesus begins by telling them to not be led astray. And he says in verse 8, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So Jesus' primary concern after his departure is that there would be men who come in and deceive the disciples by claiming to be the Messiah. 
These deceivers would make claims about themselves either being the Christ or maybe being the representative of Christ or being the second coming of Christ. And Jesus warns them and says, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray by such men. Now we have to remember the audience he's talking to. He says, see that you are not led astray. Let's not lose perspective. The disciples are there. He's talking to them. This would be a concern for them. So we know the time frame between Jesus teaching this and the destruction of the temple is 33, A.D. 33 to A.D. 70. And these are things he's describing that will happen prior to the destruction of the temple. There will be false Christs. They have been told that the temple is coming down, and in their mind it's also going to be the end of the world. And with all of that anticipation, some are going to come and say that I am the one that you've been waiting for. They will be liars and deceivers. Now, we don't have exhaustive knowledge of ancient history like we would have knowledge today, but we do have enough to know that from both Roman and Jewish historians, there were apocalyptic teachers that were common in the decades leading up to the destruction of the temple. One Jewish scholar, not a Christian, named Abba Hillel Silver, cataloged through historical accounts 16 false Christs between those years, 33 and 70. He noted an increase of messianic expectation in those decades and names 16 men who all claimed to be Israel's Savior. The reason, apparently, is that many believed at that time that they were on the cusp of the millennium and that they were on the verge of being ushered into this time of peace, and so that brought out all of these self-appointed saviors. Another Jewish scholar, Heinz Schreckenberg, wrote, It is first necessary to view briefly the messianic scenario of the post-Herodian period before A.D. 70, and above all, the persons, groups, and movements mentioned by Josephus that can more or less be characterized as messianic. In other words, here's another Jewish scholar who recognizes, boy, in, those, in that period of time, there was a lot of messianic expectation and a lot of people making claims. He also gives a list. But if we just want to stick with Bible, we have enough biblical evidence to prove that these things were so in those days. Acts chapter 5, if you remember, there's a Pharisee named Gamaliel, and he wants to quell the Sanhedrin's concerns about this Christian movement, and he says, look, if it's from God, it's going to flourish, and if it's not, it's going to disappear. And he says in Acts 5.36, for before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered." He, he reminds them, hey, don't you remember those false messiahs that we just dealt with some years ago? So this was already happening after the ascension of Jesus. We see another example in Acts 13.6. It says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Or in Acts 21 Paul has been preaching in Jerusalem and the crowds are going to tear him apart and the Roman soldiers save his life and they think he's some nut job like one of these fiery uh, end of the world preachers and they say to him in Acts 21.38, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So here's at least three examples that we have in the Bible 
of the time immediately following the ascension and the, the very birth of the early church, we already have these false prophets arising and making these claims for themselves. Now, Jesus tells us that they not only made false claims about themselves, but that they were date-setters. It says in Luke 21.7 that the, they're going to say the time is at hand. The time is at hand. And he tells them, do not go after them. So they had them in the first century. And as we look at this passage with our bifocals on, we just looked at the near and now we're going to look at the far. And what we see is that from the time of uh, Jesus teaching this to the time we are at today, we have seen all kinds of these kinds of teachers, have we not? In other words, we recognize that these warnings that were given to the disciples about prior to the fall of the temple are also warnings that define the entire church age. I mean, these are dangers throughout any period of church history. Multitudes of men claiming to be the Christ or claiming that Christ is directing them personally, that uh, that person is He is the only one that has a direct connection to Jesus. He is the spokesperson for Jesus. Now, I was looking at all kinds of different eras this week. And, I mean, this was going on in the early church. This was going on in the Middle Ages. I thought I would pick the mid-19th century because there was just a ton of messianic expectation then. I'll just give you a few. You'll recognize some of these names. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism claimed that Jesus appeared to him in 1820 and told him that he needs to restore the gospel to the earth because his return was soon. And so Joseph Smith begins this movement of Latter-day Saints and supposedly restoring the true gospel, which he got from Jesus. And there was William Miller. If you've heard of the Millerites of the mid-1800s, he predicted the end of the world would be in 1843 and all of his followers went out on a mountain hoping to be raptured and nothing happened. And so he went back home and recalculated and said, I was wrong, it's going to be 1844. And when that didn't happen, he gave up and some of his followers took over and they were doing the same thing. George Rapp, another man who had a following at the time, he said that Christ would return before he died and he was on his deathbed when he said that in 1847. John Cumming, a Scottish preacher, said 1862, according to his calculations, marked 6,000 years of human history and the world would end in that year. John Rowe said the millennium would begin in 1863. Jonas Wendell said the end of the world would be in 1874. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, said that Christ returned invisibly in 1874 and that the end of the world was going to be in 1914. And so, all these, uh, back then they were called Bible students, all these Bible students were going around advertising that the end of the world was in 1914, and when it did not happen, Russell went and redid his math, and he changed it to 1915, and that didn't happen, and then 1918, and he had died before seeing that one fail, but then the next president... Uh, of that organization came in and he said 1925 and this is the Jehovah's Witness organization, their history. In fact, their entire message, and there are many times they predicted the end, uh, their entire message is the time is at hand. Pick up one of their magazines if you find it somewhere and just glance through it. Always the, the message is Armageddon is any day now. The time is at hand. The time is at hand. The time is at hand. Now, there's dozens, many more I could give you. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Louis Farrakhan, Pat Robertson made claims about the end. Harold Camping, if you remember him from 2011, he said in May of 2011 the end would come. And that was, his people put it on billboards and they were passing out tracks to downtown cities and all the rest. 
So one of the earmarks of this kind of false teacher is a claim to know when the end will come. My wife and I were at a homeschool conference <clears throat> probably 2017, and we ran into a couple, and Becca knows the wife, and so we were chatting. And this woman's husband started telling us about the end. He said the end was coming and he said, in September of this year, the, the, the year we were in, this was going to happen. There was going to be this astrological sign. I don't remember what it was, but he said, that's going to be the marker. And then three and a half years from that is going to be the great tribulation. And he was quoting Daniel, and he was quoting Ezekiel, and he was quoting Revelation. And in machine gun fire, he was giving us all these scriptures. And we're just standing there just like, What? And I didn't want to be rude, but I'm thinking, none of this is going to happen the way he's describing it. Nothing's going to happen in September. It didn't. Nothing's going to happen three and a half years after that. It didn't. And how do I know that? Well, because Jesus tells us to beware of these kinds who go around saying the end is here. And why would Jesus give validation to a person who is going to go around claiming that? Because someone might say, well, it could happen. I mean, maybe it will happen. If enough people are making predictions, one of those is going to happen. But why is Jesus going to give validation to someone who he's already warned us against, saying, stay away from those types? And I'm sad to say, this man divorced his wife and he, he's departed from the gospel. Today, he's part of this apocalyptic, Judaistic group that claims that Christians have to keep the law of Moses. So Christians are under the law. Now what's interesting to me is that as Jesus is going to describe the cataclysmic destruction of this temple, which is what they asked about, he first warns them. Like He, he feels it's most necessary to first warn them that there are going to be many of these kinds of men who are false prophets and they are date setters and his concern is that we not go after them. These are types that lead people astray and they can't help themselves. They think they have some kind of connection to God and, and he's revealing to them when the end is going to happen. That's what happened with Harold Camping. He used to be a Bible teacher in a seminary and he had this um, family radio program and he just could not help himself. He thought he had this insight. Like he thought the scripture is some kind of puzzle or some kind of code and he was able to unscramble the code and he would broadcast on his radio the day and the hour, well, not the day and the hour, but he would say, this is happening on this day. And people would call in and say, Brother Camping, man, don't do this. It's not going to happen that way. And, he, and no one could get through to him. And oftentimes when you're dealing with cult groups, like, it's like they have to make these claims to show some kind of spiritual authority over their people. And then when the prediction does not come to pass, they shame the people. That's what they did with the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1975. They made a big hoopla about 1975. They got smart and didn't put it all in print this time, but they did it at all of their conferences. And so everyone's getting all worked up about 1975, and then it passes, and then they turn around and blame them. They wrote articles saying, some of our followers got a little excited and thinking the end was going to happen, and uh, and it's like, just, it's like they can't help it. They have to exercise some kind of spiritual authority. And they end up being wrong 100% of the time thus far. So Jesus warns his disciples, that's the first century disciples, that's you and me, do not be led astray. There are going to be false Christs. They're going to say the time is at hand. Don't go after them. His second warning, do not be falsely alarmed. Do not be falsely alarmed. Verse 9, And when you hear of wars and tumults, 
do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So the disciples ask Jesus, when is this going to take place? His first warning to them is about... uh, Do not be led astray by false teachers. And his second warning is, do not be alarmed by world events. Now, it's important to note that Jesus does not describe this series of catastrophic events as signs of the end. Some of you are going to disagree with me here, but we've got the scriptures. Let's, Let's talk about this. Jesus is not describing a series of catastrophic events that are going to show us when the end will come. In other words, he does not say when you see wars and rumors of wars, when you see nation against nation, when you see earthquakes, when you see pestilences and famines, the end is here. He does not say that here. I think he says the opposite of that here. Look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, Do not be terrified. This is another warning. Do not be terrified. Why? For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The NIV says, but the end will not come right away. In other words, don't be prematurely troubled by these things. Why does he say that? Because of the audience. He's talking to his disciples. He just told them there's going to be this cataclysmic destruction of the temple. They're thinking end of the world. And what do you expect to see at the end of the world? Total chaos. There's going to be nations in uproar. There's going to be all kinds of natural disasters. There's going to be all these things that happen. And he says, don't be prematurely alarmed. You're going to think this has to be the end. Look what's going on in the world. He's going to say, but... The end is not yet. Look what he says in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 24, 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Or Mark 13, 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Now for the longest time, I would read through Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and think what Jesus is saying here is when you see more earthquakes and more wars and more diseases and all these things, and as they're compounding, then you know the end is at hand. That's how I would have read this every time I've ever read it. But Jesus does not say that. We can disagree here. It's okay. I don't see Jesus saying that here. I think this is a preliminary warning about not being concerned about these kinds of events because these are going to happen prior to the thing he's talking about. In other words, he doesn't say, these are signs to look for, and when you see those, the end is here. He says, they're the beginning of birth pains. He doesn't say, these are birth pains. Ladies, you know what birth pains are? Not like in Hollywood, though. Hollywood movies, oh, all of a sudden the woman goes into labor and she's like, you know, 10 centimeters or whatever. It's not like that you start getting sometimes contractions in your second trimester. Braxton Hicks, right? Your abdomen starts tightening up. It's like your body's preparing. Your body knows what's going to happen. It starts to do this long before any baby goes down that birth canal. So what Jesus is saying here is these things are going to happen first. If these guys are looking for the end of the world to come... Jesus is pointing to all these things that are going to happen. 
And they can last a long time, right? I mean, you go into labor, and it's real labor, but there's this thing called false labor where you have birth pains and you're not having a baby for a long time. And so he doesn't say these are birth pains. He says these are the beginning of birth pains. What is? Wars, diseases, etc., etc. So what Jesus describes here, I think, is not just a reality they were going to experience between A.D. 33 and A.D. 70, but something that the world would experience all the way up until the time of the end. I mean, take wars. Will Durant, um, historian, said, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of them have seen no war. In other words, there's always wars and tumults. There's always wars and rumors of wars. Or is there any time that there's life on earth that does not have a nation rising against another? Or earthquakes in various places? Or famines? Or diseases? Couldn't every generation in the history of the world see all of these things happening concurrently? Couldn't every generation pick up the paper and say, wow, look look what's happening on this page and this page and this page. I mean, isn't this something that defines life under the sun in our experience in this world? So I think it's more reasonable to see what Jesus is saying here about all these different events as being defining marks of a fallen world, do not be alarmed when you see these things. These are the kinds of things that might put fear into your heart. Oh, there was a 7.0 earthquake. I think the end is here. But really, it's a world that is awaiting its redemption. It's part of the curse. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Real quick detour because I think there's a relation here. Romans 8, 19-22, Paul says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So he personifies the creation. The creation has gone under all of this turmoil. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, he, he personifies the earth as wanting, also wanting redemption. The earth is tired of wars. It's tired of diseases. It's tired of hostility. It's tired of blasphemy. It's tired of being torn apart by all these cataclysmic things happening. But these are the kinds of events that might cause people to say the end of the world is here. These are the kinds of things that make the headlines. These are the kinds of things that would put fear into your heart. And Jesus tells them, this is not Something to make you alarmed about. So do we find these kinds of things happening between 33 and 70? Yes, this is for the original audience. During the years between Christ's death and destruction of the temple, there were earthquakes recorded in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Apamea, Campania, and Rome. The cities of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae were cities all deeply impacted by an earthquake in A.D. 60. We know that Pompeii, which is probably the most well-known catastrophe of the ancient world, happened within a decade of the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's a quote I found from Seneca, a philosopher of ancient Rome, and he wrote this in A.D. 58. He says, how often have the cities of Asia and Achaia fallen with one fatal shock? 
How many cities have been swallowed up in Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often has Paphos become a ruin? News has often been brought to us of the demolition of whole cities at once. We also know there were famines during those years. There's one of them described in the Bible. Acts chapter 11, verse 28. One of these prophets named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. That's part of the verse. I didn't add that parenthetical. History records for us that that was AD AD 44. There were three other famines that occurred during the reign of Claudius. Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius both mention the prevalence of famines in this period of history. And again, as verse 9 makes clear, none of these events were meant to alarm Christians that the temple was coming down at any moment now or the end of the world was happening now. They were not to think of these cataclysmic events that one might think would be the end as something that causes them to be frightened. So for a modern application, we do not need to count the number of earthquakes that have happened over the last 10 years to see if they're increasing in frequency as some kind of sign that the end is coming. We do not need to see how many wars are going on in the world or if they are increasing. Jesus said these are going to continue to take place, but the end is not yet. We can look back through all of recorded history and see the same kinds of things. This doesn't mean that Jesus is not going to give signs. It just means that these are not the signs. These are things that would be seen as omens by the ancient world and by the modern world sometimes, but they were common. I had a whole thing on great signs from heaven. I'm not going to be able to get to it, but um, this probably refers to natural phenomenon. In the ancient world, they were very superstitious, so something like an eclipse can get people all riled up that something big is about to happen. We know Halley's Comet... uh, went around the earth in the 8066. There are eclipses, meteor showers. Josephus records a star that hung over the city of Jerusalem that resembled a sword that got people all kinds of riled up. And there are people in our day, just as there are people in those days that we might call doomsdayers who take all of these signs and see them as this is the judgment that scripture talks about. When I was a brand new Christian, I used to watch a man on TV named Jack Van Impey. And I was very interested in end time stuff. And he had a TV program every week, co-hosted with his wife. And this is how it went. Jack would sit there with his Bible And he would say, all right, Roxella, what's going on in the world this week? And she would read the newspaper. Well, Jack, there was an earthquake in Bolivia or uh, the Pope visited Rome. Oh, my gosh, this is a this is a fulfillment. And he would pull out some obscure Old Testament verse and then he would talk about what we're talking about here and he would put them together. And by the end of this program, you're like, man, this is like happening today. And he did this for decades. He, he made thousands of these programs. Now, I appreciate his zeal for the Lord. I, I believe he's, he's a Christian. Uh, but it's this kind of exegesis where you have the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other that can lead you to all kinds of speculation. I just don't think God wants us to spend our life speculating. I mean, imagine your ministry is year after year of putting out these things that just don't ever transpire now Jack died in January of 2020 and I can only imagine what he would have said about COVID-19 now this is just a this is just a warning just we we got to be careful you know I mean we need to be wary of excessive speculation I don't think Jesus tells us these things in the Bible so that for 2,000 years we can just speculate The Scripture says we are to think upon things that are true. 
And there are a lot of ministries out there that their whole focus is to get you to think upon things that might be happening. And they, they, they churn out all of this material to get people to speculate. But I don't believe Jesus taught these things so that we can try to decode some kind of puzzle that the Bible has. But every time, over and over, always the same point, the application is, are you living as someone who is ready for His return? That's the that's the point every time. It's not, are you going to figure this out? It's, are you ready if He is to come at any time? It's always about being watchful and ready. Because the danger is that you and I will become dull and we will become distracted and we will be swept away by the cares of this life And so I will end this message with the way I ended it last time and the way that Jesus ends this discourse in Luke 21 with this final warning. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, be ready. Be walking with God. Be pursuing holiness. Be denying yourself. Be loving your neighbor. So that when these things come, it's not a time of fear for you, but it is a time of glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us these things. We thank You, Lord, that as we walk through this life with our hand in Yours, we do not need to fear anything because You are with us. And You have told us in advance that You are coming again someday. Our great and blessed hope the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be our focus, Lord. May that be our great hope. May that be uh, what causes us to persevere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.